When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of N.W., the new novel by Zadie Smith. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio with Hannah Rosen, who is Slate's Double X editor. Hi, Hannah. Hi. And in our New York studio, we have David Haglin, who is Slate's Browbeat editor. Hi, David. Hey, Dan. So, as in all our audiobook clubs, we recommend that you listen to this after you read the book because we'll be discussing the various plot twists and turns of NW. NW is Zadie Smith's fifth book. It's named after NW6, the postal code for the council estate. Uh, the housing project, basically, where the novel's characters grow up in which some of them at least try to escape. The geography of the novel really sticks to one part of the map, but its style and language are all over the map in a way. It's told in five sections, which range from – in tone from sort of fractured stream of consciousness to elegant third-person narration to a kind of omniscient – Stand-up comedy routine almost, I thought. One chapter is written in Google Maps walking directions and another section is shaped like a tree. But maybe the easiest way for us to get into this conversation about this book, which I really liked but was also often really bewildered by, is to go through its sections in order and meet the four major characters in this book who are sort of going to take us through it. And the first section in the book uh, is called Visitation. And it introduces us to Leah Hanwell, who right at the beginning of the book is scammed out of 30 pounds by an old classmate of hers who comes to her door frantic with worry about a relative who's gone to the hospital, she says. This first section is written in a real sort of stream of consciousness style. It's mostly in Leah's head, but there are diagrams and directions and text poems and lots of verbal play. And I found it sort of a daunting introduction to the novel. What did you guys think? Hannah, did you find it that way or did, were you able to leap right in? I wasn't able to leap right in, but 
after reading it, I could fully absorb it. In other words, this is almost a novel that needs to be read twice because you are thrown into a world you don't really understand what's happening. And I think that's intentional because a large point of the novel is that tidy narrative, such as the one that this woman is telling Leah at the door, a kind of frantic, urgent narrative that goes from beginning to end and is very visual and clear is not how life works and not how this novel is going to work, that there's something so completely false about this narrative is part of the point. So mm. I think that's why she throws you into this thing. I mean, there's so much – once you've read the novel, you can really understand why she started it that way and what that encounter at the door means, You know that these random senseless interactions are the ones that ultimately have meaning, not your comfortable, tidy life or the story that you've told yourself about your life. It's these interruptions that become the story. But I didn't know that, obviously, when I started the story. So it actually took me a long time to kind of get into it. It was only sort of about three quarters of the way in that I started to relax into the novel. The beginning was hard for me. How about you, David? I agree almost exactly. I think that the opening section is the most difficult, probably. And, you know, I now wonder if maybe I went back and I agree with Hannah that this is a novel to be read twice, probably. Um, I wonder if I went back, would I find it as confusing as I did the first time or would it now start to make more sense to me? Just going back after reading it to sort of pluck out quotes and revisit little bits of that first section, I found it made way more sense. Oh, yeah. Just it was, dipping in. And was great, actually. Like that first section where she's trying to write something down on the newspaper and it's not working. I mean, there's so many sort of easy, natural things that just don't work, you right. know? It also is, in some ways, the most um, disjunctive as well, right? It's not just that it's first. She starts with the section that does the most with stream of consciousness that has those text poems that you mentioned, you know, a, a section about a an apple tree that is in the shape of an apple tree for some reason. Right. It's almost as though she wants to throw you off when you get started. It was hard for me to tell whether it was meant to be forbidding or whether it was meant to be playful, right? I mean, because there are like that moment where she looks at someone's mouth and so we actually just see a diagram of a mouth with tooth, 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 gap, tooth, tooth, tongue, tooth, tooth, tooth. Right. Like that's fun. And it's not that it's inaccessible necessarily, although other parts of this section are sort of – it seems intentionally inaccessible. Maybe I'll read a little bit just to give listeners a sense of what we're talking about. This is a section chosen sort of at random but is a little bit representative I think. It's Leah meeting her mom, Pauline, and they're about to take the train just out to go shopping I think. And here's how it goes. You took your time. Feeling okay? You look a bit peaky. We'll take the Jubilee, will we? This is in smaller type. Then in bigger type. Pauline steps out of her front door backward, pulling a tartan shopping bag on wheels. Always a little older than expected. Smaller, too. From the street, it must look like human perfectibility. Each generation improves upon the last. Fitter, healthier, more productive. From the owl rises the phoenix. Or rise only to descend again? Longer and longer until it's shorter. Worried about you. You seem all through yourself. I'm fine. And if you weren't, you wouldn't tell. What's to tell? On the lookout for her, still, almost a month later, expecting her out of this shop, from behind this corner, by that phone box. The girl is more real to Leah in her absence than the barely signifying bump that is with her all the time, albeit hidden by a sweatshirt. So just in this little tiny section, there's conversation with no attribution. There's a nameless mention of Shar, the woman who got the 30 pounds from Leah at the beginning of the book. There's a nameless mention of the baby that she has in her womb right at this moment that she will eventually abort. There's a lot going on just in the section 
just in, you know, in five seconds of them walking out the door and down the sidewalk. And there's also all the themes of the novel, which you only know again once you finished it, which is those reversals and those ways in which she plays with something and then plays with particularly the idea of tidy stories and then upends them. She walks out the front door backwards is an odd thing. She rises only to descend, which is basically the story of Natalie, another character that we'll get to soon. She was more real in her absence. It's That is the unifying thing in the novel is this constant theme of everything unraveling. One thought I had sometimes in reading this is that she was trying – she was saying to herself as she was writing this novel – I want this to be Ulysses, but more fun and multiracial. Like that that's the – you know, that that's like the summary in her head of what she was trying to accomplish. All that plus a Radiohead lyric. Right, yeah. Well, let's talk about the Ulysses connection. I've never read Ulysses, so I know it only through reading about it and hearing about it and sort of knowing its place in the firmament. But this does seem to be a real tribute to Joyce, and there's one section that seems that we'll get to a little bit later that seems explicitly modeled on a chapter in Ulysses. David, do you agree with Hannah that this is an attempt to sort of make a new Ulysses for a new part of the British Isles and a new generation? Yeah, it's definitely shaped by that book, which I studied in college, so it's been a while, but I did read it pretty carefully. And, you know, that one is uh, set in one day, which obviously this one is not, but it has the same kind of focus on a place, you know, in that case, Dublin. Mm -hmm. And it uses many different styles as this one does. And it also has a focus, I think, you know, on class, on the kind of particulars and the mundanities of city life. I think it was a huge influence on this book. But I wouldn't say this book is more fun than Ulysses because Ulysses actually in parts is very fun. But this one is less daunting. There are sections of Ulysses that I found just defeating. (laughs) And there's nothing in this book, including the first one, which I think is that daunting or intimidating. Right. Um, I mean, they both also, I think, share a real infatuation at times with religion, or at least with religious iconography. And I was really taken in this section by that visit to the little church in the middle of Willesden. It's like a medieval country church. It's from 938, she says, originally. And it's in the middle of like a busy roundabout. And so I did some Googling and it's a real church. It's mm-hmm. St. Mary's Willesden. It really has a holy well, like in this book, that it really has a statue of the Virgin and jet black wood. It really backs up to a, apparently a particularly dangerous council estate. And I loved this little reminder of sort of the geographical battles being waged in London every day between like the really ancient and beautiful and the new but still corrupted or decrepit in some way. And that really seems to be a conflict that's playing out throughout this book. You know, you raised something interesting since we were comparing it to Ulysses. I guess that's what all the Google Maps stuff is about. You're supposed to, you know, in earlier such novels, you would have to dig out the references quite laboriously. But here she understands that you, Dan Coyce, are going to just Google this church. Right. And you're going to figure out stuff through Google. She's kind of self, you know, sort of wry and self-conscious about that's how it's going to happen in this I'm going to Google that interview to find out it's Amy Winehouse she's talking about. Right. Or like which public housing projects are real and which aren't. Turns out they're all real except the one that the characters live in. Right, Caldwell. Caldwell, exactly. So let's talk about Leah a little bit more because she's a character who this first part focuses on, but she comes back later in the book. She seems really both sort of attracted to Shar, the woman who bilks her out of the 30 pounds, and also repulsed by her in a way because she represents 
where she came from, a place she sort of has tried to get away from but has not fully succeeded. She's really torn about the issue of motherhood. She understands that Michelle, her husband, wants her to become a mother, but she's fighting against it physically. I mean, she has an abortion. She's taking birth control pills behind his back. What did you think of her, Hannah? She's an interesting character because she's in a permanent place of indecision. In other words, unlike other characters in the book who are moving forward and backward towards something and away from something, she just sort of exists and then but exists in this permanent place of I can't decide who I am. I can't decide if I'm gay or straight. I can't decide if I like this woman or hate this woman. I can't decide if I love Natalie, my best friend, or can't stand her. She loves her husband really for his physicality, like they have a sort of physical attraction, but she can't think about him either sort of in the past or the future the way the other characters can. She just kind of exists, you know, like this was mentioned in the New York Times review, but that way in which she's staring at the bindi of the Indian woman on the bus who's sitting across from her and almost tries to disappear into the bindi. Like she, her boundaries are very fuzzy. She's not exactly a weak person or a vulnerable person. She just exists in this shimmering state of indecisiveness. I love that section. It's on page 48. Leah stares at a red bindi until it begins to blur, becomes enormous, taking up all of her vision until she feels she has entered the dot, passing through it, emerging into a more gentle universe parallel to our own, where people are fully and intimately known to each other, and there is no time or death or fear or sofas or... And then it's interrupted by dialogue. By the way, I love that line, no time, death, fear or Or sofas. sofas. (laughs) That's really good. And it's not a coincidence, is it, that the woman is Indian, right? Right. The other striking thing about Leah in the context of this novel is that she's white. Right. And that is something she seems to struggle with in her relationship to Keisha, who becomes Natalie, who we'll talk about later, and the other people around her in the estate and in London. One of the reasons it seems she feels sort of guilty about this uh, woman, Shar, feels sort of – she feels a duty – she has a political impulse and she feels like she needs to help those who are less fortunate than her, whereas Keisha, I think, seems to feel like her own advancement is enough progress in the world. And that partly has to do with being black. Right. And Leah doesn't have that feeling, I think. I never thought of that, that whiteness is the absence. Maybe that's why Leah is like she is, that she's more real in her absence than her presence. Like the whiteness gives you really no story to tap into. She's just kind of there and that's why she has no place to go. Right. Well, what's funny though is that her heritage is in fact Irish, right? It's Joycean. I mean there is a heritage and a history and a culture to tap into and she references it sometimes and you know she talks about – she talks about her Irish heritage a little bit and she also is tied into that place she came from. I mean I love that line at the beginning where she talks about she knows how people say fucking in her neighborhood where it's just like rhythm. It's not a right. word that means anything. But you're right that in her mind, at least in the present day of this novel, she seems to have sort of settled into this notion that the only role she can play in this world is trying to help others. But she sees no future for herself necessarily, unlike Michelle, who's constantly talking about progressing, moving forward, getting ahead. You know, he's day trading and trying to become something where she seems to not think she can become anything. Right. And the English have a history, too, right? It's just that Leah herself doesn't seem to have found much access to it. Um, I mean, that is partly how I took the church scene was less about religion and more about history. Mm -hmm. There's also the epigraph to the novel is from a a priest named John Ball who 
uh, was part of the Peasants' Rebellion in 1381. I only obviously learned this when I Googled Google, the quote. Right. <laughs> That's at work somewhere, but it seems like she doesn't attach to it in a meaningful way. She can't derive a kind of sense of self or identity from that history. Well, let's move to the second section. It's called Guest, and it's a complete departure. Leah doesn't appear anywhere in the section. Neither does Michelle or Keisha slash Nat or any of the people we've met so far, really, there, except for very brief appearances and then one big appearance at the end. Um, it follows Felix Cooper, who is a young man from the same neighborhood who goes through a single day. This time he gets out of the neighborhood a little bit. I mean, he lives there, but he his day takes him outside of Caldwell. He visits his father where they talk about the history of the neighborhood, but then he goes out of town and visits a very wealthy young man who's broken down MG Felix is buying. He visits an old lover of his in Soho. This section is written sort of the most conventionally. It's a very like traditional third-person narrative. I really engaged with it a lot. I really liked Felix. I liked all the different personas he put on in all these different situations, the way he dealt with a guy he was buying the MG from, where he became sort of the aggressor in that situation, and then the way he receded in his conversation with a lover who seemed so much more understanding of, of the world than he really did. And I really liked this section until the end, uh, where I, then I didn't like it at all. <laughs> so what did you guys think of Felix, and what did you guys think of Guest? I love this section. This grabbed me right away. It was a totally different experience from reading the first part about Leah. Just I actually went back and forth with reading and listening to this novel. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which was a little bit tricky at times because parts of the book just don't lend themselves to that. And this was the one part of the book that I listened to almost all the way through just on my iPod. It's just, you know, a much more straightforward story. And uh, I just was completely grabbed. I mean, in particular, I enjoyed the conversation between Felix and the older white liberal sort of former activist guy who lives nearby. Um, oh, right. I can't remember his name. Ned? Ned, is that his name? I think so. I should dig that up. But it's just a great capturing of voices. The way he talks just felt so right, right on to me. And Zadie Smith just has an incredible ear for and ability to recreate dialogue from people who speak in, in wildly different ways. Yeah. Sorry, Phil Barnes is the guy's name. I just found him. Okay. Ned is the upstairs neighbor of, of Leah. But Phil Barnes, yes, is the proper commie who Felix has that great conversation with. Yeah, the murder is what drove me crazy. But that's the whole thing. I mean, that's sort of Zadie Smith messing with us. She's giving us a character who has a solid self. Like he's taken what he is from the neighborhood and takes it outside the neighborhood to interact with these wildly different people, like a bohemian ex-lover in some kind of semi-brothel, a rich guy. I mean, he's interacting with every strata of society, an old communist, you know, a bunch of like thuggish kids. He is himself. He is a product. He's a finished product as a character. And he's also quite likable. But she doesn't want you to enjoy novels in that way. I mean, she doesn't want you to bond with the character, follow the story, you know, sink into the third person narrative. And so she kills him. That just makes her seem like a dick. Right. Like, why would she be so good at it if she doesn't want us to bond with the character in this way? I don't know. It's almost like chucking her former white teeth self or something. It's almost <laughs> like saying, you know, at this point in my career, I'm trying to teach you to read in a more difficult way. So I'm going to kill off the most sort of lovable, solid, on his feet, kind of fast talking 
character. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's how I read the completely sudden, senseless death of Felix. I don't totally disagree with you, Hannah, but she does give us, I'm trying to count the pages, but she gives us a good chunk of the novel that is written like that and is really enjoyable. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's that she doesn't want to take pleasure in that and in that sort of writing. But I agree that when it comes to story or plot, to me, this whole novel felt to some extent like an attack on story. What do you mean by that story? Well, I mean, there isn't much of one for Mm -hmm. starters, right? There are these different characters and they're in a place, but you, you can't derive the same kind of satisfaction from it that you would from a story that really had much more of a beginning and middle and end and and led to a marriage or a death or, you know, some other kind of recognized denouement. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens. Right. And one of those things that happens is Felix gets killed. Right. It doesn't really mean anything. It feels random and it's upsetting, but it's not tragic in the kind of traditional sense of that word. Maybe I'm wrong. She's not messing with you. The normal way to build the sub would be to kind of give you stakes in his life, kind of, you know, foretell his death in some way and then kill him. That would be the normal way to tell the story of Felix. But she doesn't do that at all. He just kind of meanders through his day and then is senselessly killed, which is very different. Right. And the other traditional way to do it would be to plant the seeds of his undoing in his character, and his personality. We haven't talked about Nathan yet, but the other guy from their project who kind of pops up intermittently throughout the novel is the tragic character in whom the seeds of a senseless death could be planted, right. you know, but he's not. He's like a sort of wonderful cheruby 10-year-old who then goes to seed. Right. So he's the one who should die, but not Felix. Right, yeah. She upsets your expectations like that a lot. There was a review I read, I think it was maybe Philip Henchers in The Telegraph that you know pointed out that later we'll get to when Natalie slash Keisha meets up with Nathan and it would sort of make more traditional sense for Leah to meet up with him. Right. right. But that's not what she does. And here, I mean, Felix is likable, but he's not heroic. I mean, he's a fairly ordinary guy who has a mixture of kind of noble and base motives. He's really messing up his love affair, for example. Right. He sleeps with this great uh, character, Annie, who is Russian. uh, I think she's maybe 40 or in her 40s. And she has this, you know, this posher background than he has. But she's kind of thrown it away on drugs and looks at it almost everything ironically and sarcastically and throws around the names of philosophers. She's obviously, you know, reasonably well-read and educated, but she doesn't take any of it very seriously. And Felix goes to see her and they end up having sex on the roof. And, uh, you know, this is not the kind of behavior that makes you think, you know, oh, this guy needs to stay alive. He's going to go on to great things. He's just an ordinary guy. I want to read a little bit of that conversation with Annie because I like her so much. I think we all probably liked her so Mm -hmm. much. So it's on page 185. After they've had sex and he's trying to get out of there, he started walking toward the trap door. After a moment, he heard footsteps coming up behind and saw the flicker of her dressing gown, a few silk swallows on the wing, then a hand clamping down on his shoulder. You know, Felix, a dainty little voice, like a waitress reciting the specials. Not everyone wants this conventional little life you're rowing your boat toward. I like my river of fire. And when it's time for me to go, I fully intend to roll off my one-person dinghy into the flames and be consumed. I'm not afraid. I've never been afraid. Most people are, you know. But I'm not like most people. You've never done anything for me, and I don't need you to do anything for me. Never done anything for you? When you was lying on this roof, dribbling out your mouth, with your eyes rolling back in your head, who was here? Who put their fingers? Annie's nostrils flared, and her face turned cruel. Felix. 
What is this pathological need of yours to be the good guy? It's very dull. Frankly, you were more fun when you were my dealer. You don't have to save my life or anyone's life. We're all fine. We don't need you to ride in on a white horse. You're nobody's savior. But there you go. So she's intentionally she's intentionally pushing this point that he is not heroic, right? That he cannot right. portray himself as a savior. There's no great tragedy here. He's just a guy. He's just a dealer. I'm glad you read that passage, Dan, because it's, it's once again, it demonstrates just how uh, carefully put together this novel is. That when I you know, read or probably listened to that the first time, I was just enjoying these two characters. I mean, she's a very fully realized uh, person in this book. And this seemed like, I mean, it's it's rather grandiose, but given the way she's been set up, it seems like an entirely plausible thing for this sort of person to say. Yeah. But hearing it now, looking back on this whole novel, all of the themes we've been talking about come through. I mean, the kind of striving that she thinks he represents and she's this sort of embodies this older kind of romanticism that rejects it. And I think Zadie Smith is engaging with that as well as at the same time as she creates these characters who have this unfortunate but in some ways meaningless encounter. Well, let's talk about section three. It's called Host. It's the longest section in the book. And it follows Natalie, once called Keisha, Leah's best friend from childhood, through her life from childhood all the way up to the present day in 185 short chapters, or at least in chapters numbered up to 185. It skips one. It's really quite wonderfully written, I thought, and sort of a like an essayistic voice maybe that, that utilizes a lot of different storytelling tools. I really liked seeing Nat here so different from the way we saw her in the first section where we see her through Leah's eyes, Leah who's annoyed at her because she's become a parent and Leah feels betrayed by that. But here she's really – we see her as sort of a striver who finds herself dissatisfied with the life she got once she gets what she thought she wanted. What would you guys think of, of Nat and Keisha and what did you think of this section? I loved the most the portrait of a girl friendship. Uh, I thought that was really, really nicely done, the kind of random moments that upend a girl friendship. It's sort of trajectory, the way the parents intervene or don't intervene, mm -hmm. the kind of imperfect understanding that the girls have of each other. There's a great moment when she – when Zadie Smith writes, you know, it never occurred to Natalie that her friend Leah had a personality. That, that was right. so interesting. I, mean, I really identify with that. You just think, here I am. Here's this other girl. We're best friends. But that was – was a wonderful moment to describe the seeds of separation that happened between two girls. Oh, wait. She has clear outlines. I have clear outlines. And then that turns into she likes different music. I like different music. And then that turns into my mother thinks that she's a bad influence on me because she gave me a vibrator. I just thought it was really realistic and wonderful portrait down to the specific music that they listened to mm -hmm. and, and the kind of way they both did on their tests, their A-levels, and the way, you know, Leia then kind of bumbled her way through life and Natalie was striving, striving. And then finally with this sort of fake boyfriend, the church boyfriend, Rodney Banks, that her mother set her up with. I loved all of that. I love the line she uses when she realizes that Leah has a personality where previously their entire relationship had been based on verbs. Right. right? They liked exactly. verbing together. They, right. they liked doing the things that each other did. Right. And it didn't matter the way they were. Right. I also was thinking of this section partly when I referred to Smith sort of attacking the more traditional idea of story, mm -hmm. that you could take this section and you could get rid of the numbers and the headings and craft a little novella that kind of traces Keisha's growing up and changing her name, becoming a lawyer, etc. But by breaking it up in this way, I think she gets across the idea that these are just things that happened, that one thing didn't lead inevitably to another, that it might have happened in different ways, that there's a kind of randomness involved. And one of the things that I found 
really striking, unless I missed something, her name just changes, right? I mean, she changes it, and it happens, I believe, in college. But Smith doesn't dwell on that change or give us a big kind of interior monologue about why she decided to change it and how important that was to her. She just starts referring to her as Natalie instead of Keisha. Right. Leah visits her at college and refers to her as Keisha, and, and Nat reminds her, oh, it's Nat. Yeah. And Leah says, oh, right, right, Nat. And it's on page 240 that happens. But yeah, she's Keisha all the way up till then. She's referred to as Keisha up till page 238. And then on page 239, Leah's introducing her around and she just says, no, Natalie. Yeah. And I thought her longtime boyfriend, Rodney, was a pretty well-realized character as well. Mm -hmm. Kind of a sad figure. And Hannah, I wanted to ask you in particular, since you've thought a lot about the changing roles of, of women and men, I wanted to ask you about the way that the men in this book, not Felix or Nathan, but Michelle and Frank, are, are so objectified that they're really presented to us in this very physical way. They're both very attractive men, and the women dwell on their physicality in a way that struck me as, as fairly unusual in a literary novel. I think that's true. And they're also the women are dancing around them, right? They're fairly uninteresting. They don't really notice that much that's going on. They're not really understanding the inner lives of the women that they're with. And so much of the action and thought is happening around these women and not necessarily the men. So I think that is unusual. You know, Frank especially, both of them come across like a picture, right? She falls in love with a picture of Frank. She doesn't actually fall in love with a Frank. He's not He's not that endearing a character as seen through the eyes of Natalie, not at any point in their love affair, really. Right. Even before they get together, you know, everyone assumes that they would fit together because of the picture they would make, right? The, the two black kids in their law school – so everyone sort of thinks, well, they would go together and in the end they sort of do go together and she sees it because he's so beautiful. Now, here's what I couldn't decide for myself about this section. I felt like I knew what was going to happen to Keisha and Natalie. In other words, I felt like in a way the story of Keisha and Natalie, she's the phoenix, she rises and falls, was most familiar. So Zadie Smith had to work hard to break it up and make it unexpected in a way that I thought was a little artificial, like breaking up the chapters. I mean, the story itself is fairly conventional. You knew that you know she was going to become a barrister and then something really weird was going to happen. Right, I just but did you buy that. the really weird thing that happened? Did you buy Nat suddenly going threesome hunting on Craigslist? You know, I just <laughs> felt like it was a fairly conventional thing to have her do. I know uh, that it's very unconventional to go threesome hunting. I have to I thought the scene that came out of the threesome hunting was awesome and oh, hilarious. Those two guys who can't believe their luck but can't get it up. Yeah. I mean, in a way, she made it sort of purposely funny, not all that tawdry. I thought that was her cleverest trick almost. But other than that, you know, the idea is I mean, you could read this in the statistics the idea that the black girl who tried so hard to make it that she squashed her identity, redecorated her house, married the pretty boy, and became a barrister was going to sort of drop, seemed like. You know, it was going to drop into almost like a sort of crackhead shuffling around in her slippers in the dead of night was was kind of expected. I was worried that she was going to actually become a crackhead because that's what would happen in the movie version of this story. <laughs> well, the other thing is like the destiny thing between her and Frank was so counter to every idea in the novel that you knew it, it wasn't solid, right? right. The, the number of times we were made to think that there is no destiny in this novel. This whole novel is, you know, proving the opposite of destiny, right? Life exists in the cracks and the senseless acts. So 
there was no way the two people who the world decided were destined to be together were actually destined to be together. I don't know if I would use the word predictability, but the unsurprisingness of what happens to her is sort of the point. I think Smith is not trying to excite us with twists and turns and suspense. At the same time, I don't know that it's quite as simple as as a rise and a fall. For one thing, I finished this novel not really knowing what would become of her. You know, she doesn't become a crackhead. It's not clear that she's going to continue to descend, or at least it wasn't to me. And also there are these little rises and falls within the arc. So, for instance, you know, she becomes a barrister. She's on the path to – I think she's given a tenancy, which I I don't know if that's like making partner or what that was. But she's at this fancy law firm or she's offered – here's what happens. She's offered tenancy at this fancy law firm. But one of the partners has fondled her at one point. Did I understand this correctly? I mean, that's why she decides to reject the offer. Well, that's among the reasons she decides to reject the offer. But then she goes back eventually. Well, that's the thing. So there's that little sort of rise and fall, if you can even put it that way. But so she rejects the offer. She takes a much uh, humbler job, which she could say she's taking for political reasons since she's going back to her roots. And But she, yeah, she doesn't – heart doesn't seem to be in it really for that reason. And eventually she, she goes back and she works for a fancy law firm again and, and makes money. How do you think Zadie Smith was dealing with race? Like race wasn't a huge part of Natalie's story in a funny way. It kind of was and it kind of wasn't. There wasn't a lot of racial encounters that happened in the book. I don't know. It was interesting. Like Felix gets killed by not in a racial incident. It's just I wasn't clear what was going on race-wise with Keisha and Natalie. I mean it seemed to play a major part I think in Natalie's experience in school mm-hmm. and in law school and then at the firm and that she was very clearly – cognizant of herself as meaning something to other people. You know, there's that scene where they talk about how people just like to take her under their wing because they feel like they're really accomplishing something when they take Natalie under their wing. And she has so many mentors, even though none of them actually know her that well. And so it's very apparent in her interactions in that world. But in Caldwell, the project itself in Willisden, her neighborhood, it's much more about the people you come from. She comes from the Jamaicans and Michelle is French African and Leah is Irish. And so there's those little groups that have formed and that seem much more relevant to their lives. When Nat is feeling down or upset, it's not that she necessarily thinks of herself or returns to her black roots, but it's that she goes shopping for Jamaican food specifically. Right. right. I mean, and so that seemed as important to her as anything else. Right. I thought it was present pretty much throughout. It was sometimes, you know, not entirely obvious, but I think that passage that Dan mentioned, the line is something about Natalie inspired patronage as if by helping her, you helped an unseen multitude. Right. <laughs> is very loaded. And similarly, there's a line about Natalie and her husband, and it says uh, they needn't concern themselves too much with politics. They simply were political political facts in right. very persons. And this is partly, I think, that contrast with Leah that Keisha slash Natalie feels like, you know, her succeeding is sort of enough at one point in her life. She thinks that and then, you know, she starts to spiral out of control. But when she's making these decisions about her life and, and when she's deciding to go back to the fancy law firm, it's like, you know what, if I succeed, that's a good in itself. Right. But it's not to her family, right? Her sister doesn't even, her sister is just annoyed by her. Right. And right. how she feels she's just always putting on airs. 
And Nat can't handle that. I mean, she cannot deal with the fact that her sister is functionally unimpressed by the political fact of her existence and her success. Right. Her sister has very sort of solid notions of where identity comes from. Like you have nothing to say until you have your own children. You know, her sister just deals with the facts of her existence as they are before her. And that's very different than Natalie's view. Well, Smith is really good at, at getting at the sort of weird contradictions that a person's past ends up leading to. So, for instance, there's a conversation Natalie has uh, with uh, an older black lawyer who um, oh, yeah. says, in my day, if you went down that route, meaning if you decided to devote yourself to you know, helping the poor, basically, quote, people tended to associate you with your clients. I took some advice early on. Avoid ghetto work. And the point is that this is something that Natalie specifically can't do, or according to this woman, shouldn't do, because people will associate her with their clients because of what she looks like. Right. And that if she was, you know, sort of a posh white Englishman, she could, and nobody would do that. Right. She says, that, right, that's that the third generation will benefit from what the first and second generation do, that the third generation can take those jobs and not suffer that. But the first and second generation, her, this other woman, and Nat don't have that option. Right. Well, let's move to the fourth section and the fifth section, which both sort of deal with the aftermath of... Felix is killing. And we're meant to understand, I think, though it's never explicitly pointed out that it was um, Nathan Bogle, a fourth character who we've not really brought up that much yet, who done it, as they say. He also went to school with Leah and Keisha. He was Leah's old school crush. She loved him back in the day. But it's Nat who encounters him just after the killing. And they go on a long walk across northwest London in section four. And then in section five, Nat and Leah sort of put it together and call the police basically to report anonymously that they believe it was Nat who was responsible for this killing. And these are much shorter sections. They're sort of both together. I feel like they're sort of codas to the larger story that we've been going through. And I, I wasn't sure exactly what they were meant to do. Like I really liked the conversation between Nat and Nathan. I thought the dialogue was really sharp and interesting in that. I liked Nat's sort of mini revelation on the bridge, which, of course, I checked. I Google mapped it. It's a real bridge where you really have that view of the Gherkin <laughs> in downtown London. But it made me think, David, about our discussion this summer about Capital by John Lanchester, which was sort of intentionally a big London novel that I really liked a lot and you did not love very much. And this sort of seems like the opposite. It seems like a small London novel, like an attempt to portray a really small slice of the city in great and intense detail rather than trying to encompass the whole thing. And it seems like you thought this was a lot more successful of a portrait of a city than you necessarily thought Capital was. Yeah, so much more successful. In fact, I think by focusing so much more narrowly, she actually encompasses far more about the city because in each of these people's lives, there's so much that interacts. You know, they do actually, even though she's focused on this um, particular corner of London, uh, you know, they, they go to college, they get jobs, some of them stay there. I mean, you really get a fairly wide spectrum of the city. There was a point in the novel when I was feeling frustrated. This was probably when I was still reading the, the Leah section. I wondered if it was just a mistake to take that kind of geographical focus as the premise for a novel. I, but ultimately, Smith won me over. I did find these last sections a little bit confusing. I couldn't always tell exactly what was going on between the two. And I, I yeah. feel like the revelations didn't hit me with the kind of force that they might have if I had. I felt like I needed to read it again, basically. Here's a question. So Christian Lorenzen wrote a really fascinating review of this book in the London Review of Books in which he claims that Nat and Nathan have sex on Hampstead Heath. And I didn't think that that happened. I thought that she just had to pee. 
Yeah, huh. I thought so too. They didn't have sex. Yeah, I didn't think they had sex either. Like she's really angry at him at that point. Yeah, and she sort of wants to get away from him. And the ten- the interesting tension here, which I agree, David, kind of felt jumbled in my head, is she keeps saying walk, 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 right? The whole point is that she has a journey without beginning or end, without particularly a purpose or a story. She just wants to walk, 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 walk. She hasn't brought any of her possessions. She's trying to leave her past behind. But actually, that's not really possible, right? Because then there's Nathan there kind of imposing the story on her journey, like that she's trying to get away from him and just make this open open-ended thing, uh, it was almost a declaration of the difficulty of what Zadie Smith was trying to do in this novel because there's always this person kind of hammering in her head, no, I do have a story to tell and I do have action that I want to commit and I am a full person who's going to tell you about what I was like when I was 10 and where I'm going now. You know, it was like the two of them, they, they, they were like each speaking different languages, you know, and getting on each other's nerves. That's what I found interesting about the two of them. Yeah, it's an intensely self-conscious novel. And one of the lines in this, these last two sections that jumped out at me, I'm trying to find it right now, is that um, Nathan is sort of spouting platitudes, basically. And Natalie says, uh, you sound like the magic Negro, Yeah, which is this trope in, in fiction. It really jumped out. I mean, it, it seemed like a sort of unlikely thing for Natalie to say it felt a little bit more like Zadie Smith feeling anxious about this character that she's created. But he just and killed a guy. Also. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. Like I feel like a lot of times you get to the end of novels and you feel the author being self-conscious. I mean, I think that's fairly common. He kind of is the magic negro at the end of the story, but she knows we're all thinking that. Like she right. knows we're all thinking, "Oh, here comes the magical negro to, you know, rescue the story and he's come back around and yet I mean, he is and he isn't. Well, but yeah. I mean, in the, in the sense of her rebellion against stories, you said it, David, he really doesn't rescue the story at all. She just wants to get away from him. She, you know, pees in front of him on Hampstead Heath and, and thinks about jumping off a bridge and then tells him to go away. And then they call the cops on him. Yeah, but he does rescue the novel, right? He, he turns the novel into kind of a mystery story in which you've begun in this place and you've ended up with this character who is kind of weirdly going to give Natalie a purpose. I mean, the end is very ambiguous, right? She She kind of goes back to her old life. But it's falling apart. Yeah. But she kind of makes this this kind of determined phone call to turn him in, which is an act of, you know, I don't know what, moving back to respectability or closing the chapter on something or, mm. or something. You There's know? a section I want to read. It's two pages from the end on page 399, which really struck me, especially in relation to the names of the buildings in Caldwell, the council estate. They're all named after philosophers, Smith, Hobbes, Bentham, Locke, and Russell. <laughs> And it's fictional. It's the only fictional geography in this book. But so um, Nat and Leah are talking out in the backyard at Leah's house. And Leah says, I just don't understand why I have this life. And Nat says, what? And Leah says, you, me, all of us. Why that girl and not us? Why that poor bastard on Albert Road talking about Felix? It doesn't make sense to me. Natalie frowned and folded her arms across her body. She had expected a more difficult question. Because we worked harder, she said, laying her head on the back of the bench to consider the wide open sky. We were smarter and we knew we didn't want to end up begging on other people's doorsteps. We wanted to get out. People like Bogle, like Nathan, they didn't want it enough. I'm sorry if you find that answer ugly, Lee, but it's the truth. This is one of the things you learn in courtrooms. People generally get what they deserve. And certainly that doesn't seem like that's actually Zadie Smith's point of view. And I don't even really think it's Nat's, really. That's so interesting. It's so deterministic and and story-oriented, really, unlike the entire rest of this book. Yeah, it sounded more to me like somebody trying to help someone else and saying the things that they thought 
would be helpful. It's a little bit like there's that other scene where she's speaking to a group of students, I think, and mm-hmm. she says, you know, it was by getting rid of, of artificial limits that I was able to realize my full potential. And it just sounds totally empty. You know, it's just a form of survivor guilt, right? If you come from the projects and you're the one person among the group of friends who succeeds, there must be a way in which you constantly have to tell yourself a narrative about why you, why it was you who got out and nobody else got out, so that you're constantly throughout your life kind of writing that story and presenting that to other people, even if you're not yourself wholly convinced that that's why. Yeah, it's so hollow in the context of what Nat actually believes, and it's so hollow in the context of this novel that I did not love it as like an ending lesson. Mm-hmm. David, I want to talk just for a few minutes before we finish up, because I think it's very relevant to this novel about Zadie Smith's essay that she wrote in 2008, which I think was probably right around when she was starting work on this book. It was a couple of years after her last novel came out. It was for the New York Review of Books, and it was called Two Paths for the Novel. And it suggests, I think, in some ways, her goals for this book. Can you just talk for a minute about that essay and where you think it took her in writing NW? I would start by saying that I think anybody who reads this novel should then go back and read this essay if Mm. they haven't before. Uh, I read it at the time uh, and was really struck by it. But uh, reading it now after this book, uh, in some ways I was even more struck by just how carefully and thoughtfully she was laying out uh, her ideas that I do think she has attempted to realize in this novel. And I think fairly successfully. The basic argument, she takes two books, one, Netherland by Joseph O'Neill, and the second, Remainder by Tom McCarthy, and suggests that these two books represent two different paths that the novel can take. And one of them, Netherland, is where she thinks most literary fiction is right now. And it finds in the self um, kind of all that a novelist needs that, you know, looks out at the world. And uh, that's a, it's a sort of post 9-11 novel. So it's very much about death and the past, but ultimately resolves in the character of the, of the protagonist. And Remainder, she thinks, does sort of the opposite. It, it challenges the idea that the self is enough. And I found her reading of Remainder a little bit harder to follow. I've read both of those books. I mostly agree with her about Netherland that um, I found it ultimately unsatisfying. It kind of fits exactly what you expect a literary novel to be, but somehow feels a little empty. Remainder, she thinks, uh, kind of challenges that idea, and I didn't entirely follow what she meant by that. But you do find in reading the essay an argument for what I take to be the kind of anti-story version of the novel that doesn't present things as inevitable, that doesn't see these characters as kind of destined, as as Hannah was saying. They don't reach their inevitable ends. It's more a series of, of events that happen to them, and they change, and they live in a somewhat random world. So it's a really sort of bravura piece of criticism, and I'm sure I'm not doing it justice entirely, but people should definitely read it after they read this novel. It sort of seems like N.W. represents a third way to me, right? One that combines in some passages and in some sections the lyric realism of Netherland, as she was talking about. Certainly the Felix section and really the Nat section has a real sense of the primacy of self in the sense that you can find what you need to know about her in that character. But there also is a subversion of story and a willingness to fight against that sort of animal narrative instinct that people have and and want when they're reading a novel. Is that 
What's yeah, I mean, my here? reading was not so much that it's a third way as that it's those two things arguing with each other. I mean, that was mm. the interesting thing for me in reading this the second time is just that you have one form of novel arguing with the other mm. form of novel, sort of almost with every character and in many of the interactions between characters. So she's trying to figure this idea out in this novel in a really interesting way. So I think we all agree, yes, we we recommend NW. I really liked it a lot, even as it upset me and frustrated me at times. David, I know you really liked it. Hannah? Yeah, I recommend it with the warning that it's difficult in the beginning. And so it, it almost in a weird way, I feel like you should listen to this podcast and then read NW, the opposite <laughs> of our usual advice, because it will be more pleasurable for you to read if you have a little guidance. Interesting. That's. I mean, it's true that reading reviews that essentially spoiled most of the plot of the novel, and in the case of Christian Lorenz's review, spoiled them maybe inaccurately, didn't hurt. I almost never do this, but I stopped after the first third of the book and read a bunch of reviews, and then I enjoyed the book tremendously more. Okay, well, if you listen to my warning at the beginning of this podcast and stop listening, now that you're at the end of this podcast, go back in time and listen to us before you read the book. All right, well, thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you, David. I really enjoyed talking about this book with you, and it brought a lot to me about this book that I was struggling with and it helped me out a lot. A program note, our next audiobook club selection is going to be uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which is Catherine Boo's story of a family of garbage pickers in a Mumbai slum. It just won the National Book Award for Nonfiction and it is really quite astonishing. It's deeply reported. It's deeply humane. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Please check the book out and then join us for our discussion on January 4th, 2013. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateABC. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Hannah Rosen and David Hagelin, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening. <laughs>